The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming. Since yesterday's update, we have confirmed 57 new cases of COVID 19. This means that 358 cases have now been identified in our province. We suspect up to 28 of these total cases may be community transmission. 19 individuals have been hospitalized, of which seven are receiving care in the intensive care unit. Three Albertans have recovered from COVID-19 so far, according to our data. We are working on a streamlined process for getting recovery data, and we anticipate those numbers will change. Today, I must also sadly report the second death from COVID-19 in our province. This individual was a female in her 80s, and a resident at the Mackenzie Town Continuing Care Centre in Calgary. I would like to extend my sympathies to this woman's family and loved ones. This news is extremely sad for all of us. Though we are doing everything we can to limit cases of critical illness and death from this serious virus, tragically we know that deaths will occur. We have also learned that one staff member and two other residents at this facility have also tested positive for COVID-19 with an additional 11 residents showing symptoms. These residents' tests are pending and investigation continues to determine the source of the infection. Of the two other residents confirmed to have COVID-19, both are in stable condition. The staff member who tested positive for the virus had no travel history and did not work while symptomatic. Staff who were in contact with residents who tested positive will be identified and isolated. News of this death and other potential infections in a long-term care facility will be distressing for many people. You may be listening to me right now from a long-term care facility or you may have a loved one who lives in one. Although I want to reiterate that most people who become ill with COVID will experience only mild symptoms, it can make others very sick. This is why we have taken the extreme measures we have and why I cannot emphasize enough the importance for all Albertans to follow all public health guidance. In long-term care and other continuing care facilities, where some of our most vulnerable citizens reside, we have taken additional measures to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Last week, we restricted access to these facilities to only essential visitors, all of whom must undergo health screening prior to entering. We are continuing to look at additional measures for continuing care and long-term care facilities that operators and staff could implement to further limit the risk for residents. As soon as these are finalized, we will communicate them. As I've said before, we will take all steps necessary to protect Albertans' health. In addition, we are continuing to look at additional measures to prevent this virus from spreading further. I know that this is scary but we will get through this. This isn't just about the actions that the government is taking. It's down to each and every one of us. Practice social distancing if you go outside, even if you are just taking your dog for a walk. Today's report of a second death and the increasing number of affected Albertans is why these aggressive measures are in place. And it's why every day we are working together to ensure that we are doing everything we can to stop the spread and keep each other safe. Every single Albertan has a role to play. The restrictions we have put in place on mass gatherings, 
the closures of public recreation facilities and the limitations on restaurant capacity are all in service of this goal. We all need to take these measures seriously. If you are sick, stay home. Do not go to your doctor's office, ER, or clinic unless you have symptoms that are of an urgent nature. Take the COVID-19 self-assessment. Follow its recommendations. Call HealthLink 811 if instructed. And most importantly, and I cannot say this enough, stay home if you have mild symptoms of cough, fever, shortness of breath, runny nose, sore throat, because those are the symptoms, even if mild, that can be linked to COVID. The health and well-being of your family, friends, and neighbours are at stake, and we all owe it to each other to take this seriously and keep each other safe. In the past week, we have also seen an increase in Albertans returning from international travel to come home. I want to reiterate the importance of all returning travellers to self-isolate for 14 days, even if they are feeling well. This is especially crucial for older Albertans who are at higher risk of illness from COVID-19. All of these measures are critical to keeping ourselves and each other safe and healthy. I want to now give an update on the Edmonton bond spiel with Western Canadian physicians and other healthcare workers that occurred March 11th to 14th. As I said yesterday, all attendees have been contacted and are self-isolating. We have been informed that 12 of the 47 Alberta health workers who attended the event have tested positive for COVID-19. All of their close contacts from the time they had symptoms, some including some patients, are being notified as usual through local public health follow-up. Three of the infected individuals are physicians working in Red Deer. There are also infected physicians from the Edmonton zone and Calgary zone. From the three cases in Red Deer, although they each worked less than a day while symptomatic, a total of 58 patients and 97 other healthcare workers have been or will be contacted as potential close contacts of these three. As I said yesterday, symptoms can be mild, and these physicians did not know they had been exposed to a case of COVID-19 when they became ill. They simply finished out their shifts that they were doing, went home and self-isolated at that point. This experience is a reminder that it is critical to immediately self-isolate at the first sign of symptoms. This can be challenging and the health system needs to support healthcare workers to take these steps. Yesterday, I updated you on changes to isolation timelines for COVID-19. I want to reiterate those changes. We've updated our self-isolation guidelines for those who are sick. The current recommendation for anyone sick with cough, fever, runny nose, sore throat, or shortness of breath is to stay home until you are feeling well, and at least 10 days have passed from the start of symptoms. If symptoms continue past 10 days, self-isolation should as well. This 10-day timeline is for those who are sick. Travelers returning from out of Canada or people who are close contacts of a confirmed case will still need to self-isolate for 14 days upon their return or last exposure, even if they are feeling well. Should they start to experience symptoms within this time period, they must also follow the same 10-day guidance that is true for anyone who is sick. Finally, 
I know that today's news of a second death and an outbreak in a long-term care facility will be distressing for many people. It reinforces the need to practice physical distancing. But we need to make sure that while we are keeping a physical distance between us, we are staying socially connected. It's important to remember that we are all in this together. Now more than ever, we need to take care of each other. I want to again extend my condolences to those grieving the loss of their loved one due to COVID-19 today, and to those whose family members are affected by the infections in this long-term care facility and elsewhere. We will get through this together. Thank you, and I will now take questions. Doctor, two questions. First, um, this health, this long-term care center, so they're isolating the people involved, but what other steps uh, would you expect the center to take or have you directed them to take uh, to make sure that, uh, that the virus is eradicated? So in an outbreak setting, what typically happens is that any uh, group activities are cancelled. So if there's meals in a common dining hall, uh, those who have any kind of symptoms are kept in their rooms and they're not able to come out and be with the general, um, the other members of that long-term care facility. Uh, there's enhanced cleaning over and above typical cleaning. Any kind of common touch objects such as um, like at meal times, if there are things like salt shakers, those are either regularly cleaned or taken away and only single serve packets are used. So essentially those are some examples of the measures, but the measures essentially try to limit the possibility that there's any contaminated surfaces that people could touch. Anyone who's sick is kept away from others and anyone who's been exposed to these cases uh, again, we're working through a process to make sure that those individuals are self-isolating uh, or that there are extra precautions that they're taking. I could ask you, you mentioned yesterday, you talked a little bit about testing. Uh, we're over mm -hmm. close to 3,000 now, I guess, a day. Mm -hmm. But you said, uh, you, you were asked about reagents and you said, well, you were mm -hmm. running a bit low, but you've got some help from from in industry. Mm -hmm. I noticed the Public Health Agency of Canada is also asking industry for any extra. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is, uh, is this going to be a concern for testing down the road in terms of are we going to be at uh, a lack of reagents, which basically are the chemicals that you use to test, right? Yes, that's yeah, right. So are we at danger of having a, of being limited in that and therefore having to limit the number of tests that we do? So all the supplies involved in testing from the swabs to the reagents are constantly being assessed in terms of the stock that we have, the demand that we have on the, the system. And so there are orders that are being placed and there are some orders that uh, Alberta Health Services has been able to procure. And there's also work being done nationally to work collectively across the country to try to get some of these kinds of, of supplies. And so we... I don't believe that we will have significant shortages um, in the near term. We do need to understand that as this goes on, uh, our teams are looking at, at all possibilities for sourcing these kinds of products because we do want to enhance our testing, keep our testing going. Uh, but we also need to be prepared if at some point in the future we should need to prioritize the testing capacity, then uh, we will obviously reserve the, the tests that we have for those who are the highest priority, such as hospitalized patients, um, for example. So at the moment, again, I don't anticipate any kind of issues in the short term, and there are lots of contingency plans being put in place, but it's always prudent to have backup plans just in case, and, uh, and so all of those things are happening. Uh, I'm just looking to clarify the name of the facility. Can you say that one more time? Mm -hmm. It's the Mackenzie Town. Uh, just one moment here.
Mackenzie Town Continuing Care Center. And um, do you believe that to be a case of community transmission? It appears to be. At the moment, we have no clear source. Um, I also want to ask about um, some modeling that was done by the Saskatchewan Health Authority that showed they expect 30% of that province to become infected and fatalities up to 15,000. What's the worst case scenario here in Alberta? What are we preparing for? So I think the important thing to remember about models is that models are always best guesses and they're based on looking at uh, data from other jurisdictions and again making those kinds of guesses about what might happen in the future. So with respect to Saskatchewan's model, uh, my understanding again as you say that, that the number being quoted is what they called their worst case scenario. Uh, I think one of the things to remember that we've talked about here is that the percentage of the population that eventually gets infected is only one dimension of what's important. The other dimension is over what time period does that percentage get infected. So if you have 30% of the population infected over a one month period, that has a very different impact from 30% of the population being infected over three to four months, for example. And we talked about flattening the curve and essentially that's what we're trying to do is to make sure that that spread uh, happens as slowly as possible so that those who do need care get it and that is eventually what will help us to reduce the total number of deaths and severe illnesses from this disease is to make sure that we are spreading that out over a longer time period. So I think again with Saskatchewan, uh, every model um, is going to be incorrect in some way. These are simply guesses that, that people take and try to make their best estimates. Um, and so I know obviously we've been looking in Alberta at different models, but they're all just estimates and we're preparing um, to make sure that we're ready if we should have a surge of cases. Uh, but all of the things that we're doing both as government and collectively as Albertans are to try to reduce that spread, flatten that curve and limit the number of deaths. Can you just give us an idea of what the estimate might be? So again, I know there's there's lots of interest in our modeling and that's something that, that we know, again, we understand with Saskatchewan's release that people are interested. I don't have those numbers just offhand because again, they're they're not, they're, they're more kind of these abstract scenarios, but I understand there's interest. So I think what we'll have to do is take that away uh, and make sure that we're um, considering how we best share that information because it's not about alarming people. I think people hear these really big numbers and they and they panic. Uh, and again, these numbers are just about thinking about how do the measures that we're taking impact that, lower those numbers and flatten that curve. We're going to go to the phone now. We'll come back to the room. Um, operator, could you pass through the first question, please? Thank you, yes. The first question is from Michael King of Global News. Please go ahead. After Dr. Uh, um just looking at the numbers, the rate of increase for Alberta, where does that put us compared to the rest of the provinces? And and are we seeing any sort of, of leveling off here in terms of the daily increase in the cases? So the vast majority of our cases to date have all been in people who are coming from outside the country returning to Alberta or those who are close contacts of returning travelers. And so one thing that's important to remember when you look at the rate of increase in Alberta compared to other provinces is that we have been doing more testing per capita than other provinces and other provinces have shifted a little earlier than we have away from returning travelers and towards people who have not traveled using healthcare workers uh, as an example. So 
I think that it's, it's tricky. I think I would caution using a straight number-to-number -number comparison to see what the situation is like in the provinces because, again, the vast majority of our cases, we know where they're coming from. I've talked about the fighting that war on two fronts, and most of the cases are coming from that external source, and we have a small number. Uh, again, today it seems we have an increase of about four from yesterday to today of those who we're not quite sure where they acquired it uh, in that community spread, whereas in other provinces, that have stopped testing returning travelers, again, many of theirs, more of theirs might be in that category. So um, at the moment, again, I wouldn't say we're seeing a leveling off. I think over this week, as we start shifting more into healthcare worker testing, that will be the true uh, test, I suppose, of, or um, our ability to understand a little bit better what's happening within our community, not just what's being brought in from outside. Operator, could you patch for the next question, please? Thank you, yes. The next question is from James Keller of the Globe and Mail. Please go ahead. Hi there. What can you tell us about the uh, long-term care home in terms of the number of residents, um, the average age of the patients? And I understand that this is specifically on the continuing care side. Um, they're saying that it's not affecting the sort of long-term kind of retirement part of the, the building. So can you, uh, just a bit about kind of where it is in that, that building and sort of what we're talking about in terms of the actual facility. Sure. So the information that I have is there about uh, 150 residents, or at least space for 150 residents in the part of the facility that's impacted. I understand that, as you say, there are uh, different um, levels of care, and the, the level of care that's more of a supportive housing level is not impacted by this. There's no crossover between those two, so it really is the, the continuing care portion of this particular facility that's impacted. Uh, I don't have the average age of patients at this time, but that's something we can look into and get back to you about. But it really is focused in that part of the facility where the residents would require more care and would be more in that, again, continuing care realm. James, if you reach out, we can give you more information on that. Great. I have a quick follow-up. Um, I think maybe it's obvious, but we're talking about, again, the continuing care part of it. You've got people who are uh, have underlying health conditions. Why is that so problematic when we look at a COVID-19 case and, and particularly a potential outbreak here? So long-term care is the setting where we have the, the highest vulnerability. So these are people who live together. So there's the possibility of spread between groups of people. And in addition to that, these are people who are older. We know that older people have more severe illness. And because these are people who, again, are in this setting because they require care, often have multiple other medical conditions, which also puts them at higher risk of severe illness and death. So we have always known that long-term care settings are one of our most vulnerable groups of, of people, our populations, and that's why we did take extra measures last week and why we're going to be putting in additional measures uh, in the coming days to make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to limit introduction of infection and limit spread uh, if it should get into one of these facilities. Operator, could you patch through the next question, please? Yes, the next question is from Terry Reith of CBC. Please go ahead. Yes, hi. Thank you, Dr. Hinchnoff, for taking the call. Uh, I'd like to drill into the self-isolation guidelines that were announced yesterday, uh, 10 days from the start of symptoms. Uh, just to, to frame the question, uh, what is the, the, the medical rationale behind that, and uh, is this going to make uh, testing somewhat more efficient for you? 
So with respect to the medical rationale, um, there have been some studies done in Germany where they looked at swabs of patients who were confirmed COVID cases. And as you may know, when somebody has a nose swab or a throat swab that's done for COVID, the most common test that's done is looking to see if the genetic material for the virus is present or absent. So kind of a, a looking again, just to see if it's there. But the most common test doesn't actually tell you whether or not the virus that's there is capable of transmitting from one person to another. And so what this study in Germany did is it took samples from patients um, through the course of their illness and not only checked to see was that sample positive through the typical way that we test these, but also could they actually grow that virus in a culture medium? So that is a proxy for is that virus alive, so to speak, can it actually infect another person? And so what the study showed is that um, eight days in that study seemed to be the maximum time from the start of symptoms. Now, I want to be clear, this was with people with very mild symptoms who did not need hospitalization. So I'm not talking about people who have severe illness or are in hospital. This is only those with mild illness. But in that group of people, what that study showed is that eight days was the maximum time that the virus actually could grow in that culture that seemed to be alive. So even though the nose swab remained positive past that time, it seemed that the virus itself was not capable of moving from one person to another. So what we've done in discussions with colleagues across the country is to use that study to add two days to the end of that eight days, 10 days for safety, and to say if someone's symptoms have completely resolved and it's been 10 days since the start of their illness, then we believe that the chances that they're going to be able to pass that infection on to someone are essentially zero at that point in time. Uh, however, if symptoms continue, and again, I want to be clear about this, if someone is still ill, then they should remain on self-isolation. So it's 10 days or end of symptoms, whichever takes longer. Excellent. We'll come back to the room. Um, have you heard anything about home testing kits? Apparently there's an Edmonton company called Levitt Safety, and uh, apparently they're in the process of getting approval to sell these kits. They're apparently promising that uh, you can do these in five minutes and you'll get results in 10 minutes. Have you heard anything about this? So I haven't heard about that particular company. I think people need to be very careful about purchasing a test that's not been licensed, validated um, with appropriate uh, mechanisms to ensure that the test is done properly. I know that there are point-of-care tests that have just been licensed in the United States uh, that we are looking into to see if point-of-care tests might be made available within healthcare facilities so that we have better, quicker access to testing, especially in remote areas. However, those are tests that will still be done by healthcare professionals with all of the quality controls around it. And so I think what I would say to people who are considering, you know, you know if a company is promising to sell a home test kit, uh, to be very careful because the consequences of a false positive or a false negative are significant. And so I'm not aware of, of any tests that have met all of the requirements to be able to be used by somebody in their own home. Uh, and so I just, again, would caution people before they, they rush out and buy something. And uh, you mentioned we've had aggressive measures so far. I'm just curious, you know, are you guys running out of new safety protocols to come up with, or can the measures get much more aggressive than what we've seen now? Well, I think, you know, in other provinces, they, uh, who are further ahead of us in their um, evolution of their epidemic. Uh, we've seen additional measures taken in terms of reducing the sizes of mass gatherings, 
um, and considering whether some kinds of businesses that aren't considered essential should close. Uh, we've also seen additional measures. Uh, some provinces have closed playgrounds, for example. Uh, so uh, we're, what we're looking at is for Alberta, based on our data and what's happening here, what makes the most sense, whether any of these additional measures make sense for us. Uh, and again, we're monitoring this on an hour-by-hour -hour and day-by-day -day basis because the situation does change so quickly. Uh, Paige? Hi, Dr. Hinta. Uh, a lot of people are relying on food delivery services right now, and a lot of these drivers, you know, their their employer is a company that has an app based in a different country. Are there any uh, supports or guidelines or resources um, out there for these drivers or for customers who are, who are using these services right now? You know, um, just earlier today, I actually had a question about how can someone volunteer safely? And often that volunteering is about dropping off food, dropping off supplies at someone's house. And so we're actually going to be working on some guidelines for that kind of work or that kind of activity when you're wanting either whether a voluntary basis or it could be applicable to these delivery drivers as well. So what to do for themselves to keep themselves safe and also the kinds of things that their employer needs to think about and they need to think about if they themselves are feeling ill. So what are the things they need to check for uh, you know, in the morning when they start work and then throughout the day if they should feel sick, when would they go home and notify their employer that they, they can't work anymore. So we should have those resources available uh, hopefully by the end of the week to give a little more guidance because we are getting that question quite often. So for the time being, is it okay for people to keep um, using food delivery? So food delivery is, is fine and what, what I've said before is that uh, if people want to be completely safe, the precautions they can take if they get food delivered um, is to, when they get the food, they can put it into their own dishes or onto their own plates, and dispose of the, the packages that it came in and wash their hands really thoroughly before they eat uh, because ultimately the, the main risk with this would be if there's somebody who has been sick along the way who's handled the packaging that there might be something, uh, some virus remaining on the packaging. So as long as that process happens and they wash their hands really well, soap and water, 20 seconds, um, then that food should be fine to eat. You've been listening to Dr. Dina Hinshaw's daily update. We can tell you 57 new cases today for a total of 358 in Alberta.